Carter Report presents worship from the Community Adventist Fellowship in Glendale, California. A special welcome to all of our viewers in North America and our new friends and churches in Russia. Today you'll enjoy uplifting music and the preaching of the everlasting gospel by pastor, teacher, and evangelist John Carter. Please get your Bible and study the Word of God with us today. Thank you for joining us for Worship and Praise. Pastures so rich and so sweet, God leads his dear children along. Where the water cool flow is the weary one's feet, God leads his dear children along.
I'd like you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Revelation chapter 1. In our last presentation on the book of Revelation, we dealt with the Christ of Revelation chapter 1. And today we're going to start on the seven churches. The seven churches were found in the old land of Asia Minor, which is called today the land of Turkey, or the nation of Turkey. I want you to notice this, please, in the scriptures, the message of Christ to the church. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which, of course, is the Sabbath. And I heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These seven churches were found in these seven cities. When I was a boy going to Avondale College, Rick, and I'm glad, Rick, that you're here today from 3ABN. Glad to have you sitting down the front seat so I can preach to you and hit you on the shoulder. Um, <laughs> other things too. Um, just make sure you say amen. And at the right time, a glory or two. You um, yeah, I know, it just flows. Uh, when I was a boy going to college, we had an old Bible teacher, Pastor N.C. Burns. And he taught us to remember the seven churches by the, by the letters E-S-P-T-S-P-L. You folks want to say that? E-S-P-T-S-P-L. Mm -hmm. e what do they stand for? Ephesus. That's well done. Ephesus, Smyrna, yeah. Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. These are, they were seven notable cities in Asia Minor. Perhaps some of the most important cities in Asia Minor. And in those churches, the Spirit of God had established churches. And so, God says to John, I want you to write this down and send it to these seven churches. ESP, TSP, L churches. And we're going to notice today that not only were these words in the book of Revelation descriptive of those local churches, but those words, Rick, became descriptive of the church from the days of Jesus to the last day. Therefore, the message to the people in Ephesus is concerning the first era of Christianity, basically, even though it has an application for all times. And the message to the church in Laodicea, which we're going to talk about next week, is descriptive of the church of God in the last days. Now, I want you to come, please, with me now to Revelation chapter 2 and notice these words. Would you please? Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. The Bible says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things... Uh, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And so the first message that God, Steve, has for the church is to the church that is found in the city of Ephesus. Some years ago, I had the privilege of visiting some of these cities. 
Ephesus today is just a chaotic ruin. Once upon a time, it was a great city. And in that great city, there was a great church. But that church no longer exists, and the city as such no longer exists. And the message that God gives to the church in Ephesus tells us why that church in that city no longer exists. Before a person talks about the seven churches, we ought to ask ourselves the question, what is the church anyhow? Now today, when you say, uh, you go past a building like this, you say, isn't that just a great church at 333 East Colorado, Glendale? And that's an invitation for every person on 3ABN to join us next Sabbath at 333 East Colorado Street, Glendale, California. Um, and a person drives past and they look at this church, which is somewhat Spanish looking, and they say, isn't that a beautiful looking church? But folks, this is not a church. This is just a building. This is the church here. Did you know when God gave this message through the Apostle John to the church in Ephesus, during the first century, we do not know of one church building? Hey, did, did you know, folks know that? There was not a church building during the first century. When things were the most active and the most glorious in the church, they didn't even have any buildings, let alone any institutions. Had no institutions. Now, I, I know I've got to be very sensitive what I say now, but I'm going to say it just the same. They didn't have any conference offices. Didn't have any of those things. They didn't have any hospitals. Now, let's not put down hospitals, because you need them. And you need institutions, as long as they're true to God. But my friend, all of these things, these are simply the outward trimmings, but they do not represent the church. You see, the church is not a building, and the church is not an office, and the church is not, let me say it loud because I like this, the church isn't an institution. Church is not an institution. The church is made up of people all around the world, whatever their color or their nationality or their social group. The church is made up of all those people who have true faith in Jesus. Amen. That's the church, you see? And once you become a member of that church, you can have a tremendous peace because God puts your name down in glory, you see? Nobody can touch, nobody can take your name off God's church's roll. You know that? You, if your name is on the roll of heaven, nobody can touch it. And that's the most important place to have it, my friend. You know Amen. that? A lot of people don't understand that. A lot of people don't understand that. But I want to tell you, God has got his church just everywhere around this world. And truly, my friend, now this is sometimes a little controversial, though it is a part of our teachings as a church, the true church of Jesus is invisible, even though it's got visible members like Pastor Rick. Because only God ultimately knows who is a member of the church because they've got their names written down in glory and God is the bookkeeper of the church. He's the church clerk. Okay? 
You sound in good form today, my brother. Mm, yes, boy. You know, Rick, with you and... Yes, yes, okay. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. Rick, this is mild today. We used to have a man down the front who'd shout glory so loud it would blow the PA out. So to, today it's pretty mild. I said something terrible once. I said church was like going to a dentist. So this is a dumb thing to say. I had a dentist who was one of our best givers. Our offerings went down 15% for the next, next. I want to say that going to a dentist is one of the most enjoyable experiences you can have. I want everybody to know that. Mm -hmm. I love going to the dentist. I enjoy the drill best of all. Can't get enough of it. Give me more. Mm. Now God says, I know your works, your labor, and your patience. Are they good attributes? Come on, are they good attributes? I don't have enough of any of those things, folks. Mm, I don't have a real lot of patience. I have a few works. I have a little labor, but patience I'm a bit thin on. I know you... What did you say? You said amen? Just you be quiet here in church today, Helen. I know you... Just say amen at the appropriate time. And you be very careful too, my friend there. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Now, the Bible says, now I want you to know this, the Bible says there are true apostles, and the Bible says there are false apostles. And Jesus said, and you don't need to look it up now, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 said, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of God, saying the right religious words at the right time, don't, don't that doesn't prove a lot at all, does it? Because you've got the false, the false apostles in Matthew 7, and Jesus said, they say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus said, they're going to burn. That's what Jesus said. My wife was reading, did you say amen? You thinking of anybody? Now, <laughs> my wife was reading me a statement the other day, Rick, out of Matthew Henry. And Matthew Henry was, was talking about the last judgment day. And he said in the last judgment day there were the, the immoral people and there were the profligates and there were the sinners. And Matthew Henry said, and a great heap of hypocrites. Mm -hmm. they're, they're some of the false apostles. And when you get to Matthew 7, and you don't need to turn it up because you know the passage, Jesus said, these false apostles even cast out devils and they heal people. Did you know that? A false apostle can have the capacity to cast out demons and to heal people in the name of the Lord, but that doesn't prove that that person is a child of God. Because the devil, you know, can counterfeit just about everything God can do. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, do you want to know who's right? Do you want to know who's wrong? Jesus said, you'll know them how? By their fruits. And fruit does not come on overnight. It takes time for fruit to grow and fruit to show you what it's going to be. And if you want to know the true from the false, then you've got to give a lot of time for a lot of demonstration and a lot of growing. Hear that? 
So this was a church back there that was not spiritually naive and that was not taken in and the Bible says, I know your labor and I know your patience and I know your faith and I know that you have checked out those false preachers. That's a good thing. And the church ought to check out its preachers. This is very important. You found them liars and you've persevered and have patience, and have labored for my namesake, and have not become weary. That's, that's great. These are great qualities. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's the great sin of the church of the first era. God raised up a church that was born in, in fire and zeal and love filled with the Holy Spirit, but as the years went by, that church as a reaction against antinomianism became cold and frigid and very orthodox and very correct and very lost. And the Bible says here, you got all these other things, you got patience, you got faith, and you checked out the false apostles, you're a good church, but you, you've lost your first love and therefore you've lost everything because, my friend, if you lose love in the church, you've lost your soul. You hear what I'm saying? Read on a little further. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works or else I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. These were the antinomians. They were Gnostics, which I also hate. God said, you've checked out the false apostles. You've got plenty of works. You've got a lot of good things going for you, but you've lost your first love. And God says, unless you repent, I'm going to come in and I'm going to remove the candlestick. I ask you, is it possible for the church of the living God to lose its way and be lost? Hmm? A lot of people don't believe that, Rick. They believe in the doctrine of once saved, always saved, as far as denominationalism is concerned. I, I, re I meet it all the time. I meet many of my Adventist brothers and sisters, and they say, the church is destined to succeed, and nothing can stop the triumph of the church. I can tell you one thing that can stop the triumph of the church, and that is sin. That is sin. What about ancient Israel? People say, but it can't happen. Alan White says that the church goes through. Yes, the church does go through, but the church is not the institution. The church is made up of the people of God. That goes through, my friend. That is the church, Amen. you see. What does it mean to lose the first love? What is the first love? Where do you find the first love? I will tell you, you find the first love at the cross. Have you ever, I ask you, maybe some here today, you haven't lost the first love because you never got it in the first place. What's the first love? I remember my first love. When I went to a meeting, Rick, and heard a preacher when I was a wild young teenager. That seems impossible, doesn't it? <laughs> Boy. I look back on those days almost with nostalgia sometimes. 
<laughs> I'm only kidding, Rick. I remember as a wild teenager going and hearing a man preach on the God-filled blank saying that every person is empty inside and only God can fill that blank. And he spoke about the love of Jesus and I walked out of that meeting and for the first time in my life I felt I was somebody because somebody truly loved me. And God, God was no longer a vague, impersonal figure, but God was my Father, and I knew Him. I had a special relationship with, with Him. And my heart was so filled with, with love and joy, I can never forget the joy that filled the soul of this sinner saved by grace when he first really understood that Jesus loved him and died for him. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. But the Bible says a person can lose the first love. Have you ever walked into a church like the church of Ephesus and they've got a grand choir and a grand... What are you laughing about? I don't, you don't start laughing yet. <laughs> You're like Siggy when he tells his German jokes. We never know when to laugh because we don't know when the punchline is coming or whether we've gone past it. Sorry about that, Siggy. Have you ever gone into a church that's a grand church, a great choir, a preacher who has enough degrees to, to choke an ox? There's nothing wrong with that. But the church is frigid. The frozen chosen. There's no warmth in the church. And they have a correct liturgy and everybody is orthodox and they can recite the 27 fundamentals off by heart. They will defend all of the great doctrines of the church but they're on their way to hell and they don't know it. They are engaged in playing church. It is a rigmarole they go through and they know all the right words to say because they've said it for so long and they are so righteous that if a poor sinner an overt sinner goes into their midst immediately he feels like a leper because they look down their long noses and that is the church that today we glorify and we try to emulate and we respect and admire and we say what a grand church remember what Matthew Henry said about in the judgment and a great bunch of hypocrites being burned. God said of this church of the first century it had love, no it didn't, it had faith, had faith and it had patience and it had plenty of works and it could pick out the the smart sophisticated crooked ministers. It could do all of those things and it hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It was down on loose living and God said you've lost your first love and if you don't repent I'm going to remove the candlestick out of your place. You'll still be having committee meetings. You'll still be having great church councils but I want to tell you something you'll be there by yourself. I won't be there in your midst. What a tragedy. When you go to Ephesus today, it's just a ruin. There's nothing there. No church, nothing. 
The candlestick was plucked from its place. This is symbolic of the early Christian church that started off so well, started off so strong. Rick, it scares me a little, but for the grace of God, that no church has been able to remain pure to God for more than two or three generations. And did you know that this year is 150 years since 1844? Church historians say concerning my church, and I'm an Adventist, that we are in a time of tremendous crisis. And if we survive, it'll be the first one in history. Because every other church that has started out with power and zeal has lost its first love. And God has removed the candlestick. I want to tell you something today. You know what this makes me think? It makes me think I need to pray more. I need to contemplate Calvary more. And I ought to trust in Jesus more. And I ought to keep near the cross. Amen. That's my only hope, my friend. You see, you can read these stories about these churches and it can just go over your head. But these messages, these love letters from our Christ are given to us that we might be saved. And he says, verse 7, He who has an ear, well, I got one, I think. God says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, you can have these ears, but unless you've got a spiritual ear, it just doesn't go in. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. There's one of the most wonderful promises. God says, if you overcome by the blood of the Lamb and trust in Jesus, you don't need to fear death because one day you're going to eat of the fruit of the tree of life and live for eternity. And even if you have lost your first love, there is hope for you and me today. I tell you, my friend, there is hope for you and me today. I want you to come to the next church. And this is one of the most blessed of all the churches. Perhaps this is the, the best church of the seven Verse 8, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the, the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. <laughs> Did you hear that? Here are rich, poor people. These are people, my friend, who in this world's accountancy system did not have a lot going for them. They were poor. They didn't have a lot of money, Rick. But God says you're rich because they knew Jesus. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. How do we understand these words? The book of Revelation is first and foremost a book of symbols. He who tries to make all of these these descriptive terms, literal, is completely missing the, the point of the book of Revelation. It is a symbolic book. And when it says here, I know the people who say they are Jews, it is talking about spiritual Jews. Because as far as God is concerned today, His people, His church, make up the children of Israel. 
And the Bible says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the Bible says if you have faith in Jesus, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So every person sitting here today under the blood of Jesus is a spiritual Jew. But God says, I know, I know the blasphemy of these people who say they are Jews, but they're not, but they're the synagogue of Satan. Once again, he's talking about the great heap of hypocrites in the church. People who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I believe in God. Yes, I go to church. Yes, I know I can say it all, I can say the words, God says, you're blaspheming. It's blasphemy to claim to be a child of God unless the fruit has been developed in the life and the person is living a life that exemplifies the character of Jesus. Amen. Now don't think I'm talking sinless perfection because you know I don't believe in that. But I'm talking about a radical lifestyle change that happens when a person becomes a Christian. We're not talking here, my friend, churchiness. We're not talking denominationalism. We are talking the power of God. And the Bible says, I know the blasphemy of those pseudo people who pretend to be what they're not. Now verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Let me um, tell you some interesting things about this church. Uh, the word Smyrna is a very beautiful word. It really means sweet-smelling. And it refers to a beautiful myrrh which is created by the act of crushing. And as it is crushed, it gives off a perfume to the world. And this was the church of the second and the third centuries. The church of Smyrna was a suffering church. Let me give you a strong word. A dear friend of mine who was a great theologian, whose wife suffered terribly of cancer, wrote in one of his books, Suffering is God's angel. It's a bit hard to believe, isn't it? Suffering is God's angel. You say to me, you got it all wrong. Prosperity is God's angel. Having a lot of money is God's evidence of his love to you. The Bible says suffering is God's angel. God says, I'm going to see what's going to happen to you. You're going to be thrown into prison for 10 days and you're going to suffer. And God took the church of the second and the third centuries and God put that church in such a position of torment that as it was pressed, it gave forth a perfume of glory to the world. This is a hard saying, 
it is for the glory of God that his people should endure suffering. Hard to get a few amens from that one, isn't it? Not a lot of glories about that one. If I were to stand here tonight and tell you what I heard on television last night, where a preacher said, God wants everybody to be wealthy, you pay your tithe and you're going to all be very wealthy. Going to be wealthy like me, he said. I've got a name soon to have an income of, of five million dollars as a minister, he said. I do believe that God blesses us, you know. I believe that God blesses us when we tithe. I believe in tithing, but I don't tithe because I want to be wealthy. But I do know that when, when I obey God and I follow His Word, that God blesses me in a temporal and even in a material sense. I believe in that. That's Malachi. The Bible says that. So I'm not putting that down, but I want to tell you today that suffering is God's angel. And God sends us suffering... And God sends us hardship, not because of a curse, but because he loves us. It has been said that constant sunshine makes a desert. Mm -hmm. And when the light of this world passes by, we will see mercy in misery gain in the loss of all things, privilege in all hardship, success in apparent failure. Hear this? When the light of this world passes by, we will see gain in the loss of all things, privilege in hardship. When the light of this world passes by, Alan White said that, success in apparent failure, my friend, never, never count success in a monetary sense because if you were to estimate your value by your monetary success, by the house that you own, or by the car that you drive, or by any of those things, then Jesus would have been a failure. And so would have St. Paul and most of the great saints down through the ages. Most of the great saints, including Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who came out of the bosom of the beast, out of that terrible Gullig archipelago in Russia. Why does God send us heartache and suffering? When God sends us sickness and suffering, and heartache. It is his angel of mercy who comes and stands at the door and says, I love you. And I want you to learn to walk and to trust in me. So God said to this church, you're going to have tribulation for 10 days. I want to tell you, I despise somewhat the prosperity gospel that says and is taught everywhere in the United States of America, Rick, that says if you're not prosperous, you're not blessed. Those people just don't know what they're talking about. Because money is not the thing that cuts it with God. God said, I'm going to send you tribulation seven days. Ten days. 
but be faithful unto death. I can think of a man in Europe after the Second World War, his wife had been killed in, in a blitz, and he is walking down the street, and they were rebuilding a cathedral. And the, and, and the craftsman, the stonemason, was shaping an apex out of stone. And the man who had lost his wife and who was hurting, he stopped to talk to the man and he said, and the cathedral was almost finished, he said, what are you doing? And the man said, look up to the top of the spire. He said, I'm shaping this down here so it'll fit in up there. And so when the angel of mercy comes and stands at the door of your home, my friend, it is because he is shaping you down here that you may fit in up there. The things that we need the most, we want the least. And suffering, I tell you, is God's angel. It is God's angel. Would you please notice as we read on verse 11 of Revelation chapter 2. You know, the greatest preacher, I guess, since the days of the Apostle Paul, some would say, was Spurgeon. John uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And Spurgeon said these words. He said, Our best days are often our worst days. And in the darkness we see stars that we would never see in the light. I want to say to you today, if you're going through a heartache, if you're going through suffering, remember, even though you can't understand it, it is the angel of mercy who stands at the door. Amen. Not the angel of death, my friend. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. It is only God's plan for us to die once. Some of us may not even go through the first death because Jesus may come. But for a man outside the gospel of Christ, he is destined to die twice. He will die the normal death and then he will come up in judgment after the millennium and die the second time. But the Bible says he who trusts in Christ and he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death because he will live for eternity. Verse 12, the third church. I want you to notice the third church today. And to the angel of the church, and remember next week I will continue these seven churches. Every, every week I'm dealing with the book of Revelation. Don't miss any of them. This is a series in Revelation. Crisis, it's called. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. He is also judge. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith that even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you because you hold, have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, the false prophet. There he is, the false prophet of iniquity in the church 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. This is paganism that's invaded the church. Thus you also have those who hate the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the Gnostics, which things I hate, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Let me tell you a little bit about Pergamos. Uh, Rick, I visited Pergamos some time ago. It's an amazing city. It also today is, is just a ruin. But Pergamos is one of the most important cities in the history of the church. Because as you know, when the Babylonians were overthrown by the Medes, the priests of the Chaldeans fled to Asia Minor and they set up their headquarters in the city of Pergamos. And they took the old Babylonian religion, the, Bab the, the religion of the false gods, that's Balaam, the false prophet Balak, they took the religion of Babylon and they established it there in Pergamos. And when I was there, now Dr. Bill, uh, who is here somewhere today, you will know that of course the emblem of the medical profession is a serpent twined around a pole. Most doctors would be horrified if they knew where it came from. It came from Pergamos. And the serpent is not the serpent of the Bible, it is Satan. And in Pergamos, they set up there a great hospital, and they had as their symbol, and I saw it there in the ruins of Pergamos, the serpent. And that is where the medical profession have gotten their symbol from. They don't, most of them don't realize this. There was something else of great interest there in Pergamos. There was an underground tunnel... And they had little doors, little windows at the top of the tunnel. And this is where people would go along and the priests at the top would whisper messages to them so that they might be healed. It was a great healing place. But Pergamos became symbolic of the religion of Satan that invaded the church during the 4th century and the 5th century. When the church that started out so well became a church that became paganized and the teachings of old Babylon through the great church of Rome invaded the church. And God says to the church there, I know your works, I know your endurance, but you have there a false prophet who taught my people to, to commit all sorts of abominations. God says, have nothing to do with this paganized system of Christianity that has invaded the church. And so, Rick, possibly the most dangerous place to be is in the church. In the church. Because in the church, everybody feels snug and secure, but often this is the very place where the great warfare takes place. I want you folks, please, to read on with me, please. I want you to notice a very interesting text here. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13. I know your works. This was a church that had plenty of works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, 
but I want you to know you can dwell where Satan's throne is and be secure if your trust is in Jesus. And you hold fast to my name, you can hold fast even where Satan's throne is, my friend. And did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. Who was this man, Antipas? We don't know. He's not mentioned anywhere in history. But the name is an interesting name and it may be descriptive of a class of people. Antipas means against all. Against all. Can I say this to everybody here and I want you to listen carefully. I do not believe in conformity. Hey, are you a conformist? I do not believe in conformity. Did you know that religious conformists in the last days are going to get the mark of the beast? Did you know this? I became an Adventist because of my convictions, because it was according to the Word of God. Adventists ought to be non-conformists as far as truth is concerned, and they should not bend one little bit. Amen. Hear what I'm saying? This man, his name was... Antipas, he was against all. He was a minority. I do not believe in following a majority vote, even if it's in the church, if the vote is wrong. Amen. Hear this? A lot of people say, well, if the vote is in the majority, then it proves that God is behind it. Come on. Doesn't prove a thing. Scarwin McNeil has said to me last Sabbath, one of the greatest Adventist Christians, he said, God uses committees and so does the devil. God uses committees and so does the devil. You say, but that's heresy. No, it's not. It's truth. What the spirit of prophecy teaches is what the Bible teaches. We should never follow a multitude to do evil just because the multitude say we belong to the church. You know what I'm saying? There are going to be people in the last days who are going to say, well, because everybody's doing this and because they're religious people and because they've got the vote, well, we're going to go along with it and they're going to get the mark of the beast. Would you like to know what the mark of the beast is? The mark of the beast is conformity to earthly powers and religious powers. This has stunned some of you. I think it stunned some of you. First and foremost, I want to tell you where, where my faith is. First and foremost, by the grace of God, I hope I'm a Christian. I'm not a very good one, Rick. I'm a stumbling, poor sinner, saved by grace. But I hope I'm a Christian. Secondly, in my hierarchy of values, and this is the only hierarchy that I believe in. Secondly, I don't believe in hierarchies in the church, because that's unbiblical. Secondly, I'm a Protestant. Hear that? Firstly, I'm a Christian. Secondly, I'm a Protestant. And thirdly, I'm an Adventist. I love all three terms. But if I were not a Christian first, and if I were not a Protestant second, I couldn't be an Adventist third. And I love the spirit of Martin Luther, who was brought before a church council, and Martin Luther said this. He said, unless I am convicted by the plain texts of the Bible. He said, unless I'm convicted by the plain texts of the Bible, 
or by reason. Because God is reasonable. He said, unless I'm convicted by scripture and reason, he said, I will not and I cannot recant. Here I stand. You see, that, that was what Antipas is all about. I want to tell you today, in the last days, most religious people are going to be lost, the Bible teaches. The last great issue in this world is not a political issue. The last great issue in this world is a religious issue. Hear what I'm telling you? It's a religious issue. And it's the conformity of the mind to the majority opinion when the majority opinion is wrong. And so this man said, well, I'm just not going to do it. Oh, they said, you're a stubborn beggar. He said, yes, I am. Well, they said, we'll burn you. He said, yes, you will. And so they burn him, but my friend, he's going home to heaven. You see? And so here you had a church of compromise. I want to say this to you. When you become a Christian, you don't just join a church. You know what I'm saying? You don't just join a church when you become a Christian. Something wonderful and amazing happens inside. And in the Bible, the great issue is not over paganism. The great issue is over true worship and how I relate to my Father in heaven. And I want to tell you, at the end of the day, there's only one thing that really counts for you, and that really counts for you, Pastor Rick, and really counts for me, and that is that I can get down beside my bed and say my prayers with a clear conscience. Amen. To know I can say, yes, God, I got impatient today. I got to say that every day. I say, Lord, I got impatient today and I've been tired and I haven't done as much as I should have done. And um, I've only worked 15 hours today, God, and I'm sorry that I didn't get it all done. But to say, God, in spite of all these things, I have been true to you. And you know my heart. That's the one thing that counts at the end of the day to know that I haven't sold my soul cheap. Amen. Somebody said to me some time ago about a person who's risen high in the church. They said, I, pardon my telling you this, they said, he has no soul left. I said, why? Because he sold it so long ago for political advantage. My friend, I want to say to you, in your work situation, whatever you do, the most important thing is your personal integrity and to be able to say at the end of the day, here I stand, I can do none other, God help me. That's what counts. And so in this wretched church of Pergamos, well, it was a great church, but it had a wretched system there. You had old Balaam there, who was the false prophet. Not real Balaam, that, but it's a symbolic term. It means the false prophet of iniquity. You have this old rogue Balaam there in the church. And uh, you've got Balak there, and he's teaching the people to commit fornication and to break the commandments of God and to break the Sabbath and to bring in this idolatrous system which they got from Babylon. But there was a man who said in the minority, 
well, I will not go with you because you're in the majority, but you're all wrong. And he said, I'll go with God. And so they got rid of him, and they, they burned him up. They killed him. And God says to the church, verse 16, Repent or else I'll come to you quickly. We'll fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You know, there's a judgment day, is there not? This is the symbol of judgment. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Well, my friend, uh, you and I have got something to eat that the world doesn't know anything about. Hidden manna. You know what it is? It's the bread of life. It's Jesus. I'll give the hidden manna to eat. I'll give him a white stone. Did you know that when slaves were released back there in the days of the Roman Empire, they gave them a little white stone, wrote their name on it. And I'll write on that stone a new name which no one knows except him who receives it. So when a person becomes a Christian, God gives him a new name. God calls him a child of God. I was searching Steve to find out about this new name and I turned up the book of Isaiah and it said God gives his people a new name. You won't believe what it was, Rick. It was Hepzibar. Hmm, didn't know that, did you? I never knew it either. God says, I give my people a new name. He says, call them Hepzibar. You know what it means? My delight is in you. I just love you so much. Then I read in the book of Acts that God gave to his people back there a new name too. They were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. A new name, child of God. So look at the promises. God says, you will eat of the tree of life. My daughter Julie, who's training to be a nurse, just a junior nurse, but she sat with a lady this week, held her hand as she died. She said, Dad, it was awful, awful. I said, Julie, we all go that way, but you don't need to be afraid if you know Jesus. You won't be hurt of the second death. So God says, I'll give you the tree of life. You won't be hurt of the second death, and I'll give you the hidden manna. I'll give you food that nobody else knows a thing about, and I'll give you liberty. I'll give you the white stone, and I'll put your name on it. I want to tell you today that in this book of Revelation we have a great message for the church, a great message for me, and a great message for you, that you and I will allow Christ to be the Lord of our lives, that we will be true to the living God, that every person here will be an Antipas against all that is evil. That every day we're going to have the hidden manner. People will say, what keeps her going? What keeps him going? Don't understand how he can keep going. Well, he's eating something that the rest of the world doesn't understand. He's got the hidden manner. You've got a white stone today that says freedom. And your name is written on it. And at last in the kingdom of God to eat of the tree of life. All these gifts are yours today.
in Christ.